The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 4. The Stigmata There are a lot of Victorian houses in San Francisco with bay windows, steep gable dormers, cornices, and ornate plasterwork. Restored in the late 1960s and early 70s, many of the houses were given super colorful paint jobs, inspiring the term painted ladies and the publication of innumerable coffee table books. Although it had all the right architectural features, I could tell immediately that the Victorian on the corner of 9th and Harrison that housed the Stigmata had not made the grade for the coffee table books. It was painted jet black from the tip of its highest cupola to the steps of the portico that covered the entrance, windows included. I went up the black steps through the swinging door at the top. There was a tall, sallow-looking character sitting just inside on a stool, reading a paperback book and smoking a cigarette made with harsh Turkish tobacco. I loitered a moment, expecting a greeting or a request to pay a cover charge, until he glanced up at me and said with asperity, What are you waiting for? A royal summons? Loosen your tie and go on in. There's no cover until the first show at eight. Ahead was a curtained doorway. I stepped through it into a large room that probably began life as the house's front parlor. Now there was a long oak bar along the back wall with the requisite mirror behind. Across from the bar, nestled in the space in front of a large bay window, was a tiny stage with a pair of microphones on stands. Spread out between the bar and the stage were a dozen or so cocktail tables. The floor was a dull and grimy oak parquet, and the walls had oak wainscoting with old-timey damask rose wallpaper above that. Owing to the blacked-out windows, light in the place was scarce. Most of it came from the heavy crystal chandelier in the center of the room, and a couple of brass fixtures behind the bar. I counted eight people at the bar and the cocktail tables, all of them men. But then, I had long since figured out it was that kind of place. The men were dressed in everything from business suits to jeans to bicycle shorts. All of them had short hair, a few had closely trimmed beards or goatees, and most of them looked better put together than the typical straight guy you'd find in a sports bar after work. The exception to that was the fellow at the far corner table, who was wearing some sort of goofy space goggles and a single metallic glove. Michael Jackson he was not. I didn't see Chris Duckworth among the patrons, so I went up to the bar and sat down to order a drink. I thought the bartender owed a lot to Mr. Clean of liquid detergent fame, but I opted not to mention it to him. He had a muscular build, a closely shaved, balding head, and he was wearing a tight t-shirt with the sleeves partially rolled up. There was a gold hoop earring in his right ear. I ordered a draft beer and was congratulating myself on what a great job I was doing of not acting ill at ease when the bartender came back with the beer in a cardboard drink coaster and said, Top or bottom? What? I sputtered. Guess you haven't been here before, have you? said the bartender. I'm talking about the beer mat. See, one side says top and the other bottom. It's just a little game we play. So which side do you want up? Uh, top. Definitely top. Yeah, I figured, said the bartender, and went away smiling. 
I drank some of my beer and lit one of the half-dozen cigarettes I permitted myself a day. Fifteen minutes went by. An old Broadway show tune started playing over the speaker system in soft tones. More men came in, none of them Chris Duckworth, and the bartender got a lot busier. I was trying to decide between calling it quits and ordering another beer when I felt a warm hand touch my shoulder and squeeze it gently. I looked across to the bar mirror and saw myself flanked by two of the wildest-looking drag queens I'd ever set eyes on. The one with his hand on my shoulder was tall, thin, and black with a flowing platinum wig, pink lipstick and nails, and a sequined pink miniskirt with enough padding in the chest region to pass the federal bumper crash test. On the other side was a Latin bombshell with a tower of henna-colored hair piled high, a backless green chiffon gown, false eyelashes so long they affected weather patterns when he batted them, and an outrageous makeup job, complete with beauty mark, that Earl Scheib would have been hard-pressed to match for $29.95. The blonde reached around me and tapped my drink coaster with an inch-long pink fingernail. Well, Mr. Topman, how about buying a working girl a little drink? I looked from one to the other and said, You boys are about as cute as a couple of flocked Christmas trees. I'll spring for all the tap water you can drink at the other end of the bar. The redhead wriggled his hips. Oh, he said breathlessly, we just love it if your spring was sprung. Is there a lot of tension? Let me be real clear. I take mine with two X chromosomes. Now buzz off. The blonde threw his head back and laughed. Turning to the back of the room, he yelled, Hey, Chris, teasing your friend isn't half as much fun as you said it would be. I looked back to see the guy with the spaceship goggles slip them off and walk up to the bar. It was Chris Duckworth. Hope you enjoyed yourself, I said when he came up. To tell you the truth, we wanted you to run screaming from the place or at least have a spasm of some sort. Sorry to disappoint. That's okay. Meet Salome and Gasell. They're putting on a show later this evening. Salome and Gasell both proffered a hand like the Pope holding his ring out to be kissed, and I shook each in turn. After ordering another round of drinks, Chris Duckworth and I went back to his table and sat down. The goggles and the glove he had been wearing were sitting on top of the table, as well as an odd-looking metal board with two wires coming out of the side. So what's up with the Flash Gordon get-up, I asked. Since you've seen fit to accuse Mephisto of software piracy, I decided to take a look at the product in question. I'm not following. We're talking about a chess game that you play on a personal computer, not this goofy stuff. Duckworth laughed. It's best when you accuse someone of theft to get a good description of the stolen property. Take a closer look. This is a virtual reality chess computer. When you put on the goggles, you see animated chess pieces on a board that looks like a miniature battlefield. You can pick up and move a piece while wearing the glove, and the computer uses the sensors in the glove to figure out what you're trying to do and updates the image you see through the goggles accordingly. Put on the glove and goggles and see for yourself. I slipped on the glove, which was made of a synthetic fabric with wires stitched along the fingers and palm, and then put on the wide plastic goggles. Both were attached to the board by an insulated wire. I had to admit the view through the goggles was pretty astounding. Looking down at the board, I saw a full set of chess pieces in three dimensions. All the pieces were modeled after medieval soldiers, the tallest appearing about six inches high. The pawns were foot soldiers armed with pikes. The knights were knights in armor on horseback, and the rooks were dismounted knights with broadswords, and so on to the king and queen who were decked out in robes wearing magnificent crowns and holding royal scepters. 
If that were not enough, each piece moved in place, making menacing gestures at the enemy across the board. Wait until you see what happens when you capture a piece, said Duckworth. Use your gloved hand and take the black pawn in the center of the board with the white one that is next to it. I reached down to the board and moved the white pawn Duckworth suggested across the diagonal into the square occupied by the black pawn. As I released it, the white pawn thrust forward with its pike, impaling the black one, causing it to dissolve slowly into the board like a sandcastle melting in the tide. I took off the goggles and glove. That is impressive, I said. But Bishop didn't say anything about this stuff to me. I had the distinct impression that the game had been developed for personal computers and was something you could buy in a software store on a CD-ROM. Yes, Mephisto is releasing a version of the game for personal computers, and it will be sold on a CD-ROM. The original author of the game, being an employee of Mephisto or not, would have developed the software in that format as well. But we're also releasing a version of the game that runs on a virtual reality computer like this, It's more expensive, of course, but it's a lot more entertaining. All right, then. Let me get back to the question I asked earlier today. Just what is it that makes this program so swell? Duckworth sipped some of his white wine and grinned at me over the glass. Well, I'm not really an expert, but the game is head and shoulders above anything I've ever seen, and it's easy to say why. It thinks and plays like a person, not a computer. Did you notice the way the board was set up when you looked through the goggles? The chessmen were arranged as they were immediately before the 11th move in a game between two old farts from the 19th century, Anderson and Kazaretsky. Chess historians have dubbed this particular match the immortal game because of the exceptional play of Anderson. Anyway, Anderson has begun the game with a gambit, an opening in which a player places a piece in jeopardy in hopes of gaining a positional advantage over his opponent, kind of like a Trojan horse. It's Anderson's turn to play, but the piece he's placed in jeopardy is about to be taken. If he's had a change of heart and wants to save the chess piece, this is his last opportunity to do it. What do you think he does? If his original plan was to let the piece be captured, I imagine he tells a goodbye and sends a widow a letter. Yes, of course. But if you set up the pieces like this for any other chess program and let the computer make Anderson's next move, the other programs will invariably move the piece out of harm's way but not this one. This program makes the exact same move Anderson made, King's Rook to King's Knight 1, thereby permitting capture of the Gambit piece. So what does that prove? This program plays more aggressively than other programs? Sort of. Other programs make their moves on the basis of rather short-term cost-benefit analysis. They aren't capable of following a strategy that requires some sacrifice up front to achieve the desired long-term goal. If a piece is in danger, move it. That's all they think to do. This program, like a human player, is more flexible. It can balance the long-term priorities with the short-term and take a few lumps along the way, if that's what's required to get the job done. I wasn't sure I understood the explanation completely, but being a private investigator, I could relate well to the part about taking a few lumps to get your job done. Okay, I said. I think I get the main points, but there's still something I'm not clear on. It goes back to what you said about getting a description of the stolen property. Just exactly what am I looking for? If Bishop's program can take so many forms, how will I know which is the right one? Do I have to recover them all? Duckworth laughed out loud. You really are a babe in the woods, aren't you? You're not looking for a compiled version of the game. That's what the end consumer buys in the store. What you're looking for is a source code. Right, the source code. I'm glad we cleared that up. Duckworth grinned and shook his head. I ought to be charging you by the hour. All computer software starts out as source code. 
The source code in turn is compiled into a program that you run on your computer. Think of sheet music for a song. That's like the source code. The process of playing the song from the sheet music is analogous to compiling the source code, and a recording made from that performance would be similar to a finished program. So the source code is the valuable thing because it gives you the notes for the computer program. Right. Without the source code, you can't change a computer program, just like you can't alter a song unless you have the notes for it. What's more, you can't compile the program for other kinds of computers, just like you couldn't play the song on other instruments. Enough already. If I get within a mile of anything that smells even remotely like source code, I'll consult an expert. But I have to say, listening to you talk about this, you sure don't sound like someone who hates his job. Oh, you bet I do. When I told you that today, I meant it. There's a heck of a difference between having an interest in chess and computer software and suffering through eight hours a day of sheer boredom working for people you don't respect. There's an obvious question. Why don't I quit? Precisely because it is so boring and easy. As a struggling entertainer who works nights, I need a day job that isn't too taxing. I thought I could tell which way the drag queen was sashaying. Don't tell me. Duckworth smiled, cocked his head and made a gesture like he was fluffing his dew. You guessed it. Just call me Cassandra. That's a Greek name that means helper of men. I'm doing the late show after Salome and Gazelle. In fact, I should probably be getting back to the dressing room soon. I play a little jazz bass myself. I wouldn't want to stand in the way of showbiz. But do you mind if I call you later if I think of anything else? Not at all. I'll give you my card. Duckworth pulled a card from his shirt pocket and handed it to me. One side was sturdy gray cardstock with his name and office number engraved in plain black type. The other side was lavender with the name Cassandra written in script, along with a home phone number. Thanks, I said. I have to say I feel better now that I know you work here. I was pretty sure the only reason you had me come here was to shock me. Duckworth laughed. There are much better ways to shock. In a sudden movement, he lurched across the table and planted a wet one on my cheek. I yelped like it was snake bit and jumped out of my chair. Now there's shocking for you, said Duckworth impishly. I touched my cheek where he kissed me and waggled my finger at him. As I made for the exit, an MC walked up to one of the microphones on the stage and announced, And now, what you've all been waiting for, the most dangerous entertainment in San Francisco for $10. You have been listening to The Immortal Game. A San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Mm-hmm.